This is Asian Insider, and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now, the United States and Iran are closer than ever to being at war following the killing of Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Commander Qasem Soleimani by the U.S. on the 3rd of January as he was visiting Baghdad. Millions came out on the streets to major cities in Iran to mourn the slain general, who was a larger-than-life figure in Iran. And on January the 7th, Iran fired a series of missiles at two joint U.S.-Iraqi bases in Iraq, including Ain al-Assad. But so far, the Iranian response appears to be a calibrated one, and Iran within minutes said it does not want an escalation, leaving President Trump therefore with some room rather than no option but to retaliate. We have with us today Jasmine El-Gamal, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, who joins us from Istanbul, and Indrajit Parmar, professor of international politics at the City University of London in London. So Jasmine, where do you think this leaves the U.S. in the Middle East? And we know that Iran wants the U.S. out. President Trump also does not want to remain entangled in endless wars, as he says, in the Middle East specifically. What are the options going forward? I think that depends on two key issues. The first one is whether Iran will continue to escalate or whether its response was, is going to remain limited to those two strikes that they just did in Iraq um, that resulted, so far as we know, in no casualties and, according to Iranian Prime Minister Zarif, was a proportionate attack and was not meant to escalate the situation. The second thing is whether U.S. troops are going to be forced at some point to leave Iraq and what that does to its relationship with Iraq, but also what that does to the other Western presence in Iraq that is there to fight ISIS and that has indicated that it might leave if the U.S. were forced to leave as well. So those are two things to watch out for that I think will give us a bit of a better sense as to what the future looks like for the U.S. in the region. Professor Parmar, what is London on this? Well, I I, I agree with uh, Yasmin uh, to some extent, um, but I think we need to take into account uh, two other things. One is that President Trump withdrew the United States from the Iran nuclear agreement, which really created the kind of new stage for these kinds of attacks to happen. Uh, as long as there is uh, an absence of an agreement on the nuclear question, I think this situation remains very, very uh, difficult. Second thing is maybe offer some restraint, and that's the American election in November. And I think President Trump wants to look strong. He wants to show his political support that uh, he doesn't just take uh, attacks, which he claims came from Iran, takes them lying down. But I don't think that he necessarily wants a, a war scenario, an all out war. So I think there are constraints on him too. So, but unfortunately, the longer term issue is that the United States doesn't appear to want to leave the Middle East uh, for a number of reasons, uh, including the fact that the strength of Iran and also their alliances or agreements or friendship uh, with uh, Russia and China have strengthened in recent years as well. So coming to Iran's nuclear program, the stated aim of the United States and President Trump is to stop Iran from having, uh, from weaponizing its nuclear program. Uh, Jasmine, what is, what is the, uh, the future like on that, uh, on that front? Is Iran bent on acquiring a nuclear weapon and can the United States stop it? 
Look, so I think that um, a couple of things, I mean, one can't can't decouple what's happening with the Iranian nuclear program and the recent announcements of the Iranian government with what's happening uh, between the U.S. and Iran in Iraq right now. I mean, that's just one thing that the Iranians are using as a card uh, within a larger negotiation or at least a pathway to negotiation with the U.S. So if you'll remember that the Trump administration was the one that pulled out of the Iranian nuclear deal and reimposed sanctions on the Iranians, even though the Iranians had not um, been found to violate the, the deal. So now the Iranians are saying the Iranians are basically saying, OK, so, you know, you've you've pulled out, you've sanctioned us. And of course, they've retaliated in several ways in the meantime over the last few months with attacks on Saudi Arabia and other places. But right now, they see themselves as the aggrieved party with the killing of Soleimani. And they're saying that they will will no longer abide by the limits of the nuclear agreement. Now, what that means and whether or not they will actually take that a step further and actually violate the agreement remains to be seen. Like I said, I think they're using it as a negotiation tactic with the U.S., to try to push their way back into some sort of pathway to talks where they're not coming in as the weaker party, or at least not weaker by much, in the negotiation. So President Trump's maximum pressure policy on Iran has been in place since he withdrew the United States from the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. But a lot of people are saying this maximum pressure policy has not actually worked, which is why we are at this stage today. What is your opinion on that, Jasmine? Is the, is, is the is the foreign policy working in terms of this pressure tactic on Iran? So I think there are two things that we have to look at when we try to answer that question. The first thing is whether there are any sort of communication, any constructive communication between the Trump administration and the Iranian government. And secondly, and most important, is whether there's any sort of off-ramp, any sort of opportunity for the Iranians uh, and the Americans to a certain extent to de-escalate while saving face um, in front of their own populations. And those are two things that I worry about when it comes to the maximum pressure campaign, because on the one hand, you don't have any direct communications between President Trump and his counterpart in Iran, or even at a lower level between Secretary of State Pompeo and Foreign Minister Zarif. And so there isn't any way that the two parties could be talking quietly behind the scenes, kind of feeling each other out while all of this is being played out via Twitter and in public and via these tit-for-tat attacks. Um, the other thing is about the off-ramp, the de-escalation strategy. So whenever there's any sort of maximum pressure campaign, there always has to be a way out for the party that is being pressured to take that de-escalation ramp, to take that off-ramp and be able to do it in a way that doesn't make them look like an absolute loser. I don't see those two things right now in the dynamics between the two countries. And that's what makes me think so far that the maximum pressure campaign is not achieving the stated effects that the Trump administration has said it wants it to achieve. Indrajit, could you come in on this a little bit and also tell us about the European um, angle? Because the point is often made that the Trump administration does not carry its allies with it. And the you know withdrawal from the JCPOA was one of the issues uh, which came up. And the Europeans didn't like it. And I don't think anybody likes the prospect of US and Iran going to war. It, it's very alarming. So could you tell us a little bit about your view from there on those aspects? Yeah. Yes, um, I think picking up on Yasmin's point to to develop it a bit further, 
I think one of the dangerous things about not having any level of contact between the United States and Tehran ter uh, on the question of these attacks and so on and the maximum pressure campaign, I think behind it lies the possibility or pos the probability that the U.S. is interested in regime change and that they're not really interested in uh, really uh, making any kind of progress with this particular uh, regime itself or this system. They want it subordinated completely or they want it gone. That helps to understand perhaps why they're not communicating so well in any other way than uh, through the public domain. The second thing is about the Europeans. I think the Europeans are in a slightly in a schizophrenic kind of position. They helped forge the uh, Iran nuclear agreement, one of the great successes or few successes of the European Union itself. Um, they also know that a Middle Eastern war, another Middle Eastern war, would have devastating consequences, not only in the region, but probably on the refugee crisis and so on in Europe as well. On the other hand, they can't alienate the United States too much um, because of their own trade, commercial, financial and strategic reliances on, on that country. So they basically are critical of the United States. And I think each one of uh, the, U the US, sorry, uh, European Union countries, as well as uh, Iran, are waiting for the November election. I think they would like to do everything to ensure that Trump is undermined and that uh, perhaps that uh, a result, a different result in November will open the door back to negotiation and uh, a move away from the regime change policy, which uh, President Trump seems rather bent on uh, pursuing at this time. Another phrase that we hear from the Trump administration is we want to change Iran's behavior. This is a similar phrase we've heard with other with other countries in the past. We want to change their behavior, for example, with North Korea. Is there any chance of Iran actually changing its behavior or does this kind of rhetoric uh, actually, is it is it counterproductive? Because a lot of the, the public diplomacy via Twitter, this kind of thing, actually hardens um, hardliners in in Iran, right? Uh, the sentiment on the street. It actually, it it, it also uh, hardens uh, even Iranian <clears throat> dissidents, even regime dissidents. Sort of cement and get together, and you know, nationalism sort of takes over. So, what is what is your view of that, Indrajit? I think that that is a really important question, and it's a difficult one to answer. Um, but when we look at the kind of longer term uh, approach of the United States as a whole, not just the Trump administration, I think there's a desire to maintain American global uh, roles and dominance. And having a set of crises or a continuing crisis uh, where there is this kind of tit for tat attacks and so on, uh, helps to maintain a justification for the United States forces to remain there. So if you look at the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, although it had a, a more developed legal, humanitarian, even ideological uh, rhetoric or rationale, in the end it was about 9-11 and trying to say that we have taken uh, revenge for what happened to us there. But it has maintained American forces in the Middle East. And I think President Trump wants to subordinate uh, any foes of the United States in the Middle East. And I think that withdrawal from the JCPOA provided the justification. I don't think they're particularly, you know, their entire focus isn't just on the nuclear agreement. I don't think they want Iran to change their behavior, its behavior in any direction other than 
to subordinate itself completely to the United States, which it will never do. The consequence of that is there's going to be this continuous friction, and that continuous friction, which then also uh, irritates Israel and also justifies or whatever uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and others about Iran, helps to maintain an American presence in that region. And I think that may well be the kind of big underlying sort of broad pressure, which uh, I don't think any uh, uh, American administration uh, is going to sort of uh, move away from too radically. Yes, it's interesting that you bring that up because after all, we've seen we've seen decades of this kind of friction, and uh, that and that kind of analysis is somewhat missing from the from the discourse in the U.S., especially on uh, on uh, cable television. Uh, we have to remember the days of uh, Mossadegh and the Shah and and so forth and the Islamic Revolution to really understand, put everything in context. But Jasmine, I'd like to bring you in here. What is your opinion. Could you tell us a little bit about nationalism in Iran? What is the domestic situation in Iran? So, I mean, we've seen the reaction, generally speaking, varied um, to the actual killing of Soleimani. I mean, he was a very powerful figure in Iran. He was revered by many, but many also, you know, had suffered under his hands or lived in fear of of him and his policies and so weren't necessarily the biggest fans of his but one thing that we saw was that the um the u.s strike on on him was seen by many um as a, a strike on an attack on their sovereignty um it was a very unexpected shocking attack um and uh i think uh, many of the protesters um and of course you know i mean you know, I'm not an Iranian, but from speaking to to those who are and those who uh, are covering the um, the country's protests, uh, some people were out in the streets to mourn Soleimani. That's right, probably many of them. But some were also out there because they were really angry at the U.S. action that was seen as so aggressive. Um, and so disrespectful to them as a nation. So um, not a uniform response, but definitely a very strong one on all sides. Um, but I want to come back to the to the um, points that you uh, both were just making before about U.S. strategy and sort of, um, you know, hegemony uh, in the region. I think it's a really, really interesting discussion, and those are really interesting points. Um, if I may, just based on my own experience in government uh, in the U.S., I just wanted to offer a couple of thoughts on that. And the first is, um, I don't think that we can really... You know, we've had three administrations since, let's say, since 9-11, when, when a lot of these policies were enacted. Um, but we've had three very different presidents in that time. And I don't think that we can say that every, you know, that Bush po Bush's policy in the Middle East was the same as Obama's, was the same as Trump's. In fact, they vary quite a bit. And whereas President Bush and his administration had this very um, sort of benevolent, you know, we're here to save you and teach you about democracy and, and this American exceptionalism-centered um, approach to the region, um, the Obama administration actually came in quite differently, um, really wanting to look at the region and deal with it on a basis of respect and to get U.S. forces out of the region um, uh, and not be involved in any more uh, you know, dominance of the U.S. militarily over the region. Um, he just wasn't interested in that. Um, enter President Trump. I think one thing that's really important to understand about President Trump is that he 
um, you know, vociferously campaigned as an anti-Obama. Everything that he does is seen and thought of through that lens when it comes to his intentions in the region. Whatever Obama did, he wants to undo. Whatever Obama didn't do, he wants to do to prove that he could do it. And I think that especially when you look at our policies in Iran, um, that is a very important thing to keep in mind because I think that one of President Trump's biggest goals in his presidency and what he would really love to deliver in advance of the 2020 election is a deal that was better, that he could say was better than the one that President Obama did. And to say that he bullied and and really strong-armed the Iranians into that better deal, I think that that is probably at the top of his wish list um, for the 2020 election. And very quickly, where does this leave Iraq? Iraq is obviously extremely vulnerable now. The, the parliament has voted to, they have said that U.S. troops should leave. But if U.S. troops do leave Iraq, I mean, it, it could just implode. I mean, this it, the crisis could become a really region-wide crisis. Where does this leave Iraq? So I'm really glad that you asked that because not enough people in the U.S. foreign policy establishment um, or even in, in the media have been paying attention to how Iraqis feel about this and the impact on the Iraqi government and the Iraqi people who are kind of caught between this tug of war between Iran and the United States. So as you said, the parliament voted to ask the U.S. to leave. However, um, that vote was a non-binding resolution. It wasn't a binding legislation to force the Americans out. And also that session was held um, barely at quorum. The Sunni and um, Kurdish members of parliament actually boycotted that session. So it wasn't really fully representative of all of Iraq, but it did put enough pressure on the prime minister, the outgoing prime minister, um, Prime Minister Abdel Mahdi, to um, to really, you know, think hard about this and say to the U.S., well, maybe it's best if you leave, because in his own words, he said, it's one thing if the U.S. is still here for its mission to counter ISIS and to train Iraqis. But if the mission is suddenly changing and you're here on our soil to fight Iran, then that's a different story. And that maybe if that's the case, it's best that you leave. Um, the prime minister and, and the Iraqi people really have been incredibly frustrated at having to be put in this position. And, um, and it's something that the U.S. and Iran should both keep in mind, um, because an unstable Iraq is not in the best interests of either of those two conflicting or warring parties right now, neither Iran nor the United States. In the Jeet, very quickly, after the, the events of the last few days, are you pessimistic or optimistic about the state of the world? We're hearing over here in D.C. that the world is a safer place now with Qasem Soleimani gone and so forth. But on the other hand, it doesn't look that great. What is your opinion? Very quickly. I think there are some um, reasons to be pessimistic, as always, because of what has happened. Uh, it depends all depends on the handling of this thing. But I think there are two reasons why I would be a little bit more optimistic. One is the election that is coming up. And I think President Trump has, as you said, promised to end endless wars and so on. And I think his political base and the general public opinion in the United States has no thirst for war. There are also groupings like the Quincy Institute of Responsible Statecraft, which are campaigning uh, much more vociferously uh, within the think tank community and so on, 
against this idea of endless wars. So I think that's an important one. Second thing, of course, is that the campaigns run by the people on the sort of left, Bernie Sanders and others, are making this a central question too. What is America doing in the world and in the Middle East? And I think they're challenging those rhetorics and those uh, that whole rationale, uh, as well as the military spending. So I think there are, those are two very important uh, things that we need. We can say make us give us a little bit of hope for 2020. But as we know, wars don't only come because people plan them. They, they come often because of a of, of a of a kind of an unintended uh, impact or consequence that occurs. So we have to be careful. But I think there are some reasons to be uh, hopeful as well. Okay, well, that's a good note to end uh, to end on. So, Indrajit and uh, Jasmine, thank you very much again in this very busy time for, for you sparing some time for this. Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you. you very much. Here in the United States, we are still relatively early in the election cycle, but this is unusual in the sense that the Iran crisis has brought foreign policy to the fore in the campaign. All the candidates are talking about foreign policy now. How long this lasts, we don't know, because foreign policy is not normally so big an election issue at home in the U.S. It's more about jobs and the state of the economy. But when the U.S. and Iran are at, on the brink of war, or even some say in a state of undeclared war, it's anybody's guess what influence foreign policy will have on the election. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirmal Ghosh.